Good morning. Acts of compassion and kindness are rare in these days, aren't they? Uh, I bet you, as a matter of fact, some of you, that if I looked on your uh, smartphone, if I looked up your history on YouTube, you have probably once upon a time watched uh, videos and compilation videos of random acts of kindness or small acts of kindness. And it just warms your heart when you're watching these videos and and you're seeing people do things uh, in a world where those kind of things don't happen a lot. Or when you're at a grocery store and you see somebody's uh, card declining and and you or someone walks up and uh, pays for the person who seems to not have the funds to pay for what they they need. See, these acts of compassion and, and goodness and, and kindness are uh, important to the Christian life, important, important to humanity, as a matter of fact. Uh, and what it does to us is it warms our hearts because we realize that this isn't how the world usually works. It actually shows us something about the reality of our world. We stop and we look at those because we realize how rare they are. As a matter of fact, even small acts of kindness like that often find themselves on the news. Small things that don't impact a lot of people are found on the news because even the news realizes that that's big news when people do things like that. That doesn't happen very often. I think of one gesture of kindness and compassion. In 2013, uh, Dwayne Wade, anybody familiar, future NBA Hall of Famer, uh, was asked on YouTube by a gal in Miami High School to go to prom with her. She's needing a a prom date, uh, and why not ask an A-list celebrity? As if uh, finding a date was hard enough, now you make it extremely difficult. And uh, he invites, or she invites him, and uh, sure enough, on the night of prom, Dwayne Wade drives up, parks in their house, and spends an evening with their family, takes pictures, signs autographs, spends time there, uh, and then uh, with his group takes uh, this gal to the prom. And would you have it at prom, everyone's looking and saying, wow, why in the world would he associate with us, much less her, but us? That Dwayne Wade is at our school, at our prom, hanging out with us. Why in the world? How amazing is it that he's hanging out with us? As a matter of fact, they weren't the only ones thinking that because right after that, you saw it all over the news that Dwayne Wade is hanging out with these people that he has no association with in any other way other than his compassion for the invitation to be there with them. There was a much more compelling account of compassion and kindness in history. 2,000 years ago, the Son of God steps out of heaven in humanity. He is clothed, taking on the likeness of human flesh and associating with the likes of us. Someone who could, in in anyone's imagination, couldn't be further away from each other. The nature of the Son of God, the nature of humanity. I mean, this isn't someone stepping out of Hollywood and going to a dance. I mean, this is God of the universe stepping out of heaven and the riches in heaven and the blessed relationship of the triune God in eternity with one another in perfect harmony, stepping out of heaven 
and associating with you and me, not to take us to a dance, but to deliver us from the penalty of our sin and to deliver us into the presence of the Father for eternity. You see, that is an extreme act of compassion and kindness and love from God. And because of that, you and I, we can't afford to forget that humility of God the Son. And so many times we are tempted to forget the humiliation of the Son of God being clothed in humanity. Him being recognized in flesh, associating with the sinful nature of you and I. We can't forget that, that he associated himself with you by becoming like you to save you. We can't forget that. As a matter of fact, as Christians, we can't afford to forget the reality of the incarnation of the Son of God. If we're going to be faithful believers, if we're going to live our faith and truly understand the weight of the reality of Christ coming here, we have to understand the humility, the compassion, and the love of the Son to associate himself with us. So I put it this way this morning, that Jesus unashamedly associating himself with our sinfulness It ought to motivate you and I, it ought to motivate us as a church to boldly associate with Jesus and his mission to see lost people saved. And as you jump into Matthew 3, which if you haven't already, go ahead and open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look at a text that does just that. It's Jesus associating himself with our sinfulness And not just him, but we're going to see the whole triune Godhead interacting together in this text for one purpose. To initiate the earthly ministry of Christ to save sinners. And because we see this picture of the triune Godhead here in this text in full confirmation with one another all about this mission of seeing lost people saved, how important is it for you and I to take the same mission as important and as pivotal as the God who created it? Let's look at the text. Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Let's just read it once more. Then Jesus came from from Galilee. Why, Why Galilee? Well, when you read in the Old Testament, even as the prophet says, uh, Galilee is Galilee of the Gentiles. You remember, geography is important in the Gospel of Matthew because geography actually fulfills so much of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming son, the, the coming Davidic heir, the coming Messiah. And so being from that he's coming from Galilee associates Jesus not with Jerusalem, Not with the city of David, not with the place that you were expecting this to come from. The religious elites, those who, those Pharisees, those Sadducees, or, you know, the people, the chosen people of God. No, no, no. He comes from Galilee of the Gentiles. It shows you a small picture of God's redemptive plan, not only for the people of Israel, not only for the Jews, but for all the nations. And so we see Jesus coming from Galilee to the Jordan, to John. To be baptized by him. So John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? You ever thought about that question? 
Why in the world does John the Baptist look at Jesus and say, you, I need to be baptized by you, but you come to me. Why does John ask that question? Because John admits himself in the gospel of John that he did not know that Jesus was the son of God at this point. As a matter of fact, I'd like to turn you there. Look at John 1, starting in verse 29. John 1, 29. You see, Jesus and John, they were cousins. They obviously knew each other in a familial way. They at least, even if they didn't hang out all the time, they recognized one another. They knew one another's family. They probably watched one another grow up to some extent. But yet John still confesses, I did not know him. Let's look. John 1, there in verse 29, says the next day, that is after the picture that we're in, the scene in Matthew 3 after Jesus' baptism, that's what verse 29 is talking about. After the baptism of Jesus, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he recognizes him very clearly now, doesn't he? He said, This is him. Behold, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Verse 31, I myself did not know him. Well, remember, there's your first admission. John the Baptist says, I didn't know him. I did not know him. Well, we can't mean in a familiar way because they're cousins. They know about one another. But, let's keep reading. But for this purpose... I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. If you're in John and you write in your Bible, which I think is a fine thing to do, go ahead and underline that or circle this, that he might be revealed to Israel. We need to remember in this sermon series, Preparing for Jesus, that was John the Baptist's entire mission, was to come as a forerunner of Christ to prepare the way and to announce his arrival. And this is where the proof of that is. I came baptizing with water that Jesus, that he might be revealed to Israel. But look at verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Well, what is he talking about? The baptism that happened the day before. We'll get to that in a moment. But he's, he's t- telling him and accounting for them what had just happened the day previous. And he says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Verse 33. I myself did not know him. There's your second admission to John saying, I didn't know he was the Son of God. Okay, now what? But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So as God had commissioned him to be a forerunner, he says this, The one whom you see from the heaven in the form of a dove, the spirit descending on, that one, that's the Son of God. And he admits twice that he didn't know this was the Son of God. Why is this important? Because look back at the text. John would have prevented Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John is saying this even though he knows that's not the Son of God. So what about Jesus is so significant even when John the Baptist doesn't know that he's the Son of God, that he still realizes that there's something different about Jesus and John? Well, we can only speculate. I think we can speculate with great precision in some areas, with great confidence, that there could be this 
that Jesus and John being related to one another, when we think about John the Baptist saying, I need to be baptized by you, but yet he doesn't know he's the son of God, then why does he know that Jesus should be the one baptizing John? Well, they grew up together. They've known about each other. The testimony of Jesus, even as a child, as he conversed with authorities at the temple and then the synagogues, and as he lived such a righteous life as a child and grew in stature with man and with God, and that's what we read in Luke 2. Luke 2, it says this. Now, his parents, in verse 41, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast has, was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents didn't know it. Skip down to verse 45. And it says, And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. How many of us have ever been amazed at the wisdom and understanding of a 12-year-old? Well, you have a whole group of people at the temple looking at Jesus at 12 years old saying, pretty amazing, pretty amazing. And then, verse 48, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Verse 49 says, and when he said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. In verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is one of the few testimonies and witnesses we have of the young, early, adolescent life of Jesus. But it is undoubtedly not the only testimony about Jesus during that time of the reality of his wisdom, of his stature, of his knowledge, and of his holiness. You see, what's important about John looking at Jesus even before he knew who he was when it comes to his relation to God the Father, he still looked at Jesus and said, there's still something different about you. You are holy. You are set apart. You are altogether different than I am. This is important because we believe that Jesus was sinless since conception. And what we have here perhaps is proof that even though John the Baptist doesn't know that he's the son of God, he's grown up with him and realized, in you I have found no sin. You are coming here to take part in a baptism of repentance as if you have something to repent of? He says, I'm your cousin. I grew up with you. I realize you have no need of repentance. And yet you come to me for a baptism of repentance? And then it, would, it makes sense when John says, I need to be baptized by you. When it comes to righteousness, when it comes to holiness, we're in separate spots here. I should be where you are, and you should be where I am. You see, it was amazing that, for John the Baptist that Jesus would associate himself with sin. John, realizing he had sin, realized that when it comes to the pecking order of holiness here, you should be baptizing me. But what does Jesus say? Look at verse 15. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. Jesus is saying, yeah, you're right. You are sinful, and I'm not. That's the Hayden paraphrase version, right? But Jesus said to him, let it be so for now. Like, you're, you're, you're right on, right? I, no sin here. You definitely have some sin. But let it be so for now. Jesus is pointing out that there's something happening in this moment that makes Jesus' baptism of utmost importance to God. That this baptism is important. It's supposed to signify something. And so he's saying, 
right now, this needs to happen. For thus, is what it says in verse 15, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He says, John, you and me, this, what we're about to do, this symbolic action that we're about to do, is to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? This is, this is the will of God in our life in this very moment in history. You, the forerunner, me, the Christ, me associating with sinful humanity. This right here is what it's all about. That's what my mission here is for. So baptize me now so that I can fulfill the mission that, that my Father has given me. And look at verse 15. The rest of verse 15 and part of verse 16 says, Then Jesus, he consented, and Jesus was baptized. What we see in the baptism of Jesus isn't, in effect, the same baptism of John for repentance is what he was doing for everyone else. Everyone else came because they knew they had sin. They knew they needed to repent of their sin. So he baptized them, and there was a repentance of sin. As they went down into that water and as they came up, it was them preparing for the one to come because they knew that they needed a Savior. When Jesus was baptized by John, it was a one-time baptism, and there's only one person in all the universe who has ever been baptized with the baptism of Jesus, and it was, the, it was Jesus himself. And this baptism wasn't because he had sin that needed to be forgiven. This baptism was him willfully associating with the sinfulness of humanity. As everyone else was getting baptized for repentance, Jesus came in ultimate humility, and he says, I have come... I have been clothed in human flesh. I am and always like you, except for I'm fully God, but I've been clothed in humanity. And I've come to bear the sins of the world. And so this baptism is me, is Christ, identifying with sinful humanity through the symbolic act of baptism. I want you to sum it up this way in point number one. This symbolic act of, of baptism, of Christ willfully associating with our sin, means that we need to grasp the significance of Jesus associating with your sinfulness. You need to grasp the significance of Jesus associating with your sinfulness. See, this is important. This is what the baptism of Jesus was all about, that he was placed into that water after a long line of sinners, and no doubt a long line of sinners after him were being baptized. And Jesus, who had no sin, no guilt, no shame, plunged under the water to identify himself with the sin of humanity. There's a great verse you can jot down in your notes when it comes to uh, the cost and the transaction of Jesus' association with sinful humanity. And you can jot this reference down, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. In this text, you have the apostle Paul. You have him addressing the church in Corinth. And this is what he says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, you, you know the grace, the unmerited favor. You know the message of the grace of the unmerited favor of God in this way. That though he was rich, we have Jesus, he was rich, right? He set aside the treasures and riches of heaven, and he came down to earth. And that's what it says. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He had the riches of heaven and eternity and full glory in the right, the right hand of God the Father, he steps out of heaven, he clothes himself in humanity, and it says he became poor. He associated himself with sin. 
He identified with the human condition so that by his poverty, in 2 Corinthians 8 9, that by his poverty you might become rich. That he came to identify with you and with me and the rest of sinful humanity that by him taking on our poverty, we would take on his richness. That we would receive the blessings of sonship in the presence of God the Father and the riches found therein, the inheritance that we've been sealed for in the Holy Spirit, being protected by the power of God, awaiting our arrival, we have been given that because he associated with our sinfulness. It's heavy, and it ought to be heavy. As a matter of fact, that's the first application point I want you to jot down. You need to feel the weight of sin. Feel the weight of sin. I want you to think how big a deal sin is to the triune God. Uh, Sin wasn't something... Uh, to meddle with. Sin wasn't something to be passive about. Sin wasn't something to uh, push aside and deal with later. As a matter of fact, God saw that sin was so important that he came. As a matter of fact, sin was so potent and sin was so effective to destroy the human nature, to mar the relationship between God and man to the extent that it was irreparable apart from God himself stepping out of heaven and into the humanity to take on sin for us. You see, sin was heavy enough that only God could lift the weight. And so when we look and we say, fill the weight of sin, what we're saying is you need and you must understand the reality of what it meant that Christ came to associate with our sin. Feel the weight of sin. Two, don't diminish the compassion of God. This is something our whole world wants to do. They want to diminish the compassion of God. They like to say things like this. God is a moral monster. Uh, How could God be so loving if we see so much sickness and death in our world? How could God love me if he allows the world to be what it is? Or how could God love me if he doesn't like me the way that I am right now? Because God created me this way, of course. But God, God's not compassionate. He's everything but. You see, the problem with that, we can't diminish the compassion of God when we grasp the significance of Jesus associating with our sin. Because those things are completely separate. We can't say that God isn't compassionate when he came to associate with our sinfulness. When he came and set aside his riches and became poor so that we would receive his riches. That sounds like the most compassionate God that could ever exist. The reality is, is when we understand the significance of the association of Jesus with our sin, we have to confess and we must confess that we serve a loving, compassionate God who is patient and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. When we look at Jesus being baptized in the River Jordan, that he who has no need to be baptized, would do it to identify with us. That's compassion. That's much better than Dwayne Wade taking you to prom. It's the God of the universe associating with you when you had no business associating with him. Mm, Come on, church. All right, number three, don't lose the awe of God associating with sinful people. Don't lose the awe of God associating with sinful people. 
people. Without looking at the meta-narrative of Scripture in its totality, without doing a survey of the Old and the New Testament, you just think about Scripture. How in perfect relationship in the garden, Adam and Eve were in perfect relationship to the triune God, and they, uh, they were blessed in one another's presence. There was pleasure forevermore there in the Garden of Eden. And the minute that sin entered the picture was the minute that the pleasure of our union with the triune God was completely severed. And we lost the privilege of being associated with the presence of God. But yet God always found a way in his sovereign plan and his redemptive plan in history to provide a way for people to be in his presence. But yet it was still distinct and different than what we as Christians or what Adam and Eve in the garden and what we'll also receive in eternity, which is the direct presence of God as we look into his face, as we are in perfect relationship with him. What we see and said in scripture, especially in the Old Testament, is that God said, I'm going to dwell with my people, but I'm distinct from them. They can't see me. They can't touch me. They can't be in my presence. I'm going to build a temple. You're going to build a temple. I'm going to dwell in the temple. Although I'm among you, you will always remember that I'm distinct from you. And the Jews and all of the nations were in awe of the fact that God would associate with them. People lived in fear of not of Israel, but of the God of Israel. They were in awe that God would be there in their lives, guiding them and directing them because they realized, who are we that God would dwell with us? And we can ask the same question when we grasp the significance of Jesus associating with your sinfulness. Who are we that God would dwell with us, that he would put on humanity to set aside his riches for our poverty? Who are we? That should inspire awe that God is so compassionate and so loving that he would associate with us. You see, once we grasp this significance of Jesus associating with our sinfulness, we need to not make this mistake. And I'm afraid that many people make this mistake. They focus so much on simply that Jesus came down and took on human flesh, but they forget the triune nature of the Godhead's participation in the salvation of humanity. Did you follow that? We focus so much on the Son, which you can never diminish this, you should never diminish the Son. You cannot glorify and exalt the Son enough because the Father does it. But what we can't do is forget the participation of the triune Godhead in creation, in salvation, and in eternity. And what you're going to find right here in verses 16 and 17 is an example in the text of this reality that we must come to grips with. Because what we see in verses 16 and 17 is the truth that the Trinity has come together in perfect harmony for the mission of seeing lost people saved. Let's look at the text. Verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You see, we have in this text a glimpse into the Trinity's perfect relationship 
on display. We have the same relationship that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have enjoyed for eternity. We have a glimpse here in time and space manifest in front of us at the Jordan River. And we have in these two verses the Son accomplishing the will of the Father. Look at the text. And Jesus was baptized. And he, immediately when he went up from the water, behold, the heavens were opened. The reality is, is God the Father had sent God the Son to the earth to take on the sins of man. And so in this, we have the Son associating himself with the will of the Father for the mission of seeing lost souls saved. And then we also see in this text the Father bestowing honor and glory unto the Son. Continue and look. In verse 17, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. When is the last time the heavens opened and you heard the voice of God look at you and say, This is my child with whom I am well pleased? What you see in this text is the Father bestowing honor and glory unto the Son. This is my Son. My pleasure is in Him. He is my chosen portion. The honor and the glory is His. So we see, we see the Son accomplishing the will of the Father in His incarnation. We see the Father bestowing honor and glory unto the Son. And would you look there in verse 16, we have the Spirit expressing His pleasure and His union with, with the Father and the Holy Spirit descending onto the Son from the presence of the Father. Look at this. We have the Spirit of God descending from the Father and coming to rest on the Son. In this one picture, you have the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit relating to one another in perfect relationship in regard to the mission of seeing lost souls saved. Do you see how important it is to understand, at least in as much as our finite minds can fathom, and as much as the Word of God gives us, that we would understand and work to understand the nature of the triunity of our God? That we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in perfect relationship, confirming that not just the Son is here to do this. We're saying the Son wasn't simply just a delegate to do the dirty work, which I feel like most people wouldn't say it that way, but in our hearts, that's how we think about it. God the Father, God the Spirit are up there in eternity. They've got jobs to do, uh, and so God the Son's going to go. He's going to take care of the redemptive work of humanity, and then we're all going to get back up there together with the Father and the Spirit. But we see in this text that Jesus wasn't a delegate of the Trinity, to come here to see lost people saved. We see here the fullness of the triune God was evident and appeared here when it come to the triune God's desire to see a lost humanity saved. And we have God the Father saying, yes, this is the mission. We have God the Son saying, I'm here for the mission. And we have the God the Spirit coming down and saying, I'm here to empower the mission. We see here in unequivocal terms the Trinity on display when it comes to the mission to see people saved from their sin. You see, if you've lost me, we can go to the basics. The triunity of God. One God expressed in three persons. Equal in essence, distinct in their roles. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, equal, all God, but distinct in their roles in history and salvation and eternity. 
Bruce Ware defines the Trinity this way. There is one God and only one God, eternally existing and fully expressed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Godhead is equally God. Each is eternally God, and each is fully God. Not three gods, but three persons of the one Godhead. Each person is equal in essence, as each possesses fully the identical, same, eternal, divine nature. Yet each is also an eternal and distinct personal expression of the one undivided divine nature. Is that clear? (laughs) The reality of the triune nature of God is one of the, the greatest mysteries of the Christian faith, and it is one of the foundations or the foundation of the Christian faith. And the one thing I truly love about the triune nature of our God is it is what makes God God. It is what makes the unfathomable unfathomable. It is the reality that we serve a God who has made himself known, but yet can never be completely known. That is the definition of God. God can't be the limits to which my mind can reach and nothing else. It has to be the limit to what my mind can reach and then infinitely more. That is the depth of the knowledge and the nature of God that which can never be completely known outside of God revealing it to us, which is why I always say anything and everything written in the Scripture is a self-revelation of God to us, and so if it's in there, he wants us to know it about him, and so we should always do everything we can through the power of the Spirit as the Spirit illuminates the text to our eyes to know God the way he has revealed himself to us so that we would know him in the greatest extent that he desires us to know him. Amen, church? Mm, Come on. This is great. It's good good text. What we also want to look at here, in particularly in this text, is the Godhead's role in salvation of souls. That's what we see. We see the Godhead coming together in union about the, the beginning, the initiation of the mission of God. Right here, this is the mission, the initiation of the mission, because Jesus, after this, you're going to notice throughout the rest of the text, he's actually going and doing the work that he had been prepared beforehand to do. And so this is the coronation of the mission. And so when we look at the salvation of souls, we need to understand that each person of the Trinity participates in the salvation of the soul. So if you're saved in here, you've understood your sin You've seen, the work of, you've seen and understood the work of Christ on the cross. You understand your sinfulness. You've understand that he's associated with your sinfulness so that you didn't bear the penalty, so that you would receive the riches of Christ. You should return from your sin and place your trust into Christ. That's you. Now you have had in that experience a Trinitarian experience. And simply can be said this way. God initiated our salvation. The Son purchased our salvation. And God the Spirit sealed our salvation. It's the triune work of God in salvation. That it was God's plan before the foundation of the world. God the Father to send Christ the Son to bear the sins of many. And that the Spirit would seal us for the day of redemption. An inheritance as a down payment for the inheritance that is waiting for us in eternity. And what you see clearly here in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, this unity of God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit, and confirmation of the mission of the Son to redeem people from the penalty of sin, 
It's clearly here. It's not just here. It's foretold even in prophetic verses in the Old Testament. If you have a moment, jot down or turn to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verse 1. So we see it clearly in Matthew 3, 16 and 17. And what we see in Isaiah 42, verse 1, is the prophecy of the exact text in Matthew 3, 13 through 17. This exact moment in history is so significant that you see Isaiah, the prophet, speaking as a mouthpiece of God, saying this exact moment will happen in the future. And this is what it says. Isaiah 42, verse 1. God is speaking through Isaiah, the prophet, and he says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Who's God talking about here? Who? Jesus. As a matter of fact, that's what uh, the book of Isaiah calls the messianic coming king is the servant. As a matter of fact, you may have heard the term the suffering servant. The reality is this is God saying, my son, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. Doesn't that sound a lot like what we just read in Matthew 3? When it says there in verse 17, behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, in whom my soul delights. It's a direct prophetic connection to the Old Testament, looking forward to the time where this moment was going to happen. And then he continues and says in Isaiah 42, 1, I have put my spirit upon him, capital S, spirit. I have put my spirit upon him. What do we see there in the text in Matthew? When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. He has put his Spirit upon him. And what does the rest of Isaiah 42.1 say? He will bring forth justice to the nations. What is the work of Christ? To bring the justice of God to all nations. To bring the justice and the recompense of God First to those who are being saved. First to those who would understand their sin, turn from their sin, and place their trust in Christ and the work of Christ. And then when Christ comes back, guess what he's going to do? He's going to complete the work of bringing forth justice to the nations. You see, this Isaiah 42, one verse, is prophesying exactly what happens in Matthew 3, 13 through 17. We can see the triunity of God at play in Isaiah We can see the work of the triune God on display in Matthew. And let me just posit it this way. If we see the triune God in complete harmony in these texts, which I hope you see that, in complete harmony, in complete affirmation, in complete pleasure in one another, saying this is what we are doing here on earth in this moment to see lost people saved They're affirming the gospel message. If we see the triune God here doing that work, we should make it a point in our faith in the same triune God to participate in the mission of our triune God. That's point number two. I want you to write it that way. You need to participate in the mission of our triune God. We should see how how serious God takes the redemption of of humanity. And it should take us a moment as we think and consider how important this was to God to then apply and implicate ourselves to ask the question, how important should this be to us? There is nothing more important 
for the triune God to participate in when it comes to the world, when it comes to where we live, what's going on in history, than the redemption of souls, the gospel mission. As a matter of fact, Jesus says as much. Can I take you to one more text? Look at Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Matthew 28, starting there in verse 18. We have Jesus, after his death and after his resurrection, he appears to the apostles on the mountain where he had commanded them to go before. And he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's talk about the Trinity. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Son. Who gave it to the Son? The Father. So even as we're looking here, we're saying God has given all authority in heaven and on earth to the Son. His pleasure was in the Son. It was, to the, it was to the glory and honor of God to bestow all things onto the Son. And Jesus says, I have all authority and all power on earth and in heaven. And here's the mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, get this, in the name of the Father the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. You see, we must take seriously the Trinity's commitment to the mission of making disciples. Because in this text, at baptism, which remember, baptism is the culmination of reaching people. Right? It is a culmination because at baptism is when people publicly, symbolically exclaim, their union with Christ. And so it is the culmination of their salvation because they stand before people and they are baptized. And as they're baptized, as an outward symbol of the inward change that has been given to them by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this is how Jesus says to baptize people. You be sure that when you baptize them, it's in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All three. The importance of this and the connection we make to this is if we're baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it would make sense that as we're sharing the gospel and as we're telling people about the work of God in salvation, that would mean that we are teaching people about the triune nature of God in salvation, wouldn't it? As we see it in the text, if I'm going to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they have to know something about the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit when it comes to our salvation. And just how important and just how compassionate and kind and serious God is about the salvation of souls. And then it says, to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I love that. Even in Matthew 28, we're not just baptizing them in the truth of the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we have Jesus, the Son receiving all glory and authority from the Father. And even in the last text, in verse 20, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Who's Jesus talking about? The Holy Spirit. Because that's what he said a few chapters before in all the Gospels. He says, I, I must go, but it's better that I leave because when I go, I will send you the Helper who will be with you. Here, even in Matthew 28, twice, 
we see the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit both in our salvation and in our sanctification, in our faith as we live every day here on earth, that we must understand that it was a complete work of the triune God that we are saved, that we are being sanctified, and that we will be glorified with God. Just a couple of things I want you to do. I, I want you to do because I see it here in the text that you should see how important making disciples is to the Trinity and that you would see that it should also be important to you. If making disciples was that important for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit to in perfect union and perfect relationship with each other and perfect accord say we are here unequivocally that the Son would associate with sinful humanity, as God has initiated salvation, the Son is being clothed in humanity, being the propitiation for our salvation, and then the Spirit will indwell those who have been saved, and not only just indwell those who have been saved, but the Holy Spirit comes on Christ to empower him to live this life in our place, and then as we are saved, as we have been saved and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live this life for his glory, and they said that making disciples was this important to them that they would all three be involved through the whole process, how important should it be to the Christian to make disciples? Of all nations. Or secondly, think about it this way God did not spare heaven's greatest treasure for the salvation of souls. Neither should we, neither should we spare anything for the sake of seeing lost people saved. If Jesus laid aside riches and took on poverty, as God sent his one and only Son, we should not spare anything in our lives so that we can, not just with word, but in our deeds, take seriously the mission of our triune God. So let it be, as we look at this text, and we see Jesus associating himself with our sin, with your sin, with my sin, let it motivate us to associate with the mission of our God to see lost people saved. Let's pray. God, my genuine prayer and brevity and sincerity is that you would teach us about you, that our church, as we continue learning about you through the gospel of Matthew, that you would reveal to us yourself in clarity and the fullness therein, that we would know you, God the Father, that we'd understand the work of your Son and the work of the Spirit and how that would empower us, compel us, move us to great ministry ahead, to great missions ahead, great disciple-making ahead. God, let this be a kind of sermon, God, that doesn't go in one ear and out the other, but God, that we would take it, that we would allow your Spirit to do in us the work of preaching, which is to convict, to exhort, to encourage, to admonish all of those things. God, we welcome it. We ask that you would do that work in us. We lift it up to you and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.